Well, this morning we come to Genesis 22, the story of Abraham and Isaac, that familiar story of faith, the story that James draws on in James chapter 2. We know the author of Hebrews picks up on uh, in his great hall of faith and as, as, the, as one of the examples of great and tremendous faith. It's one of those stories, there are certain stories in the Bible which it really does require you to, um, uh, I don't know, maybe splash cold water on your face and hear again. Because, you know, we get used to hearing these Bible stories and they become common to us. <laughs> and, but the man was asked to kill his son. You know, it's like we, we hear that and we think, yeah, whoa, that is great faith. And he walks up there. And, but sometimes there are stories that do really call on you to, hear it with really fresh ears and think, wow, what must that have been like? It's condensed down in the text, actually, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in verse 2. Then he said, now take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. He really, the Lord lays it on there, you know. It's your only son, the one you love. And take him to Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering. And so in verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey. You know, now, this is what makes it challenging because we read this and, you know, it's, it's oftentimes, you know, you see uh, when you, you know other people are going through hard things. We had this, I told you, you know, that uh, our, our principal in the, uh, in the elementary school uh, um, discovered that she has cancer. And so we're going through this right now uh, at the school as a, church, as a school uh, family and, and uh, so forth. But I remember when she, she told uh, me that and then it became public. And we went to a basketball game. Her daughter and Emma play on the girls' basketball team. And um, so Christina and I are driving up to the game. And I know I'm going to be sitting with them at the game. And the news had just broken. And the whole way up to the game, I'm thinking, what's it going to be like to sit next to her? Like, is she going to be a mess? Is she just going to Is she going to be able to focus on the game? Is she just going to be in tears? Like, I, I just, you know. And when we got up to the game... And Christina was very anxious because she hadn't seen her since the since I had informed the faculty. Um, and we got up to the game, and there she was watching the game and cheering and clapping and laughing with her husband. And so I sat behind him and said, "Hey, Cindy, hey, Chuck, you know." And we got talking, and and uh, it felt as if everything was normal. Um, and I remember what a I, it took me a second to say, "Okay, uh, okay, uh, we can have normal conversation here." And I thought what an interesting feeling that was because I'm, I'm thinking, did she get some good news? Like in the, in the meantime, did she find out the, did the biopsy come back and it's not what we thought? Cause wow, she's, she's really holding her own here. And, um, and, and then you, you, because you're not the one with it, uh, you kind of forget that, that she's going through that. And then it was a couple of days later when she had to go in the hospital and all of a sudden tests began and this and this surgery and this, and all of a sudden it, you came back to it and it was like, Oh, yeah, that's right. This is really, really serious. Um, and when we hear Abraham just saddle his donkey and go, we're like, oh, okay. Guess maybe it's not. I guess it's not that big a deal. Um, but it's a big deal. He tells him take his son and go sacrifice him. And, and though Abraham and, and Moses doesn't feel the need to tell us everything that Abraham is feeling right now. And we, the observer, can just read over this and, oh, yes, it's great faith, but I think it is worth meditating and contemplating on the extremity of 
the command that's given to him. So I want us to think about this story. And again, it's, as I said earlier, it's kind of hard to come to these with fresh ears, but we'll do the best we can. And again, our desire here is to, in this Lenten season, prepare ourselves for uh, Good Friday. That's what all this is moving toward. We're coming toward the, the, the reality of Christ's death on our behalf. And so Lent is that time for us to reflect upon our sin and our need for a Savior and exactly what it is Christ does. And so the Old Testament texts are laying the groundwork. And here we have a really significant passage that's laying the groundwork for what Christ is going to do. And we, because it's familiar, we kind of know where this sermon is going and we know the story. And that's all right. That's all right. But it's good to have it refreshed for us. Well, let's think about the command. We've already mentioned it. The command is a serious one. And what a Appears from our perspective, if we think about it, but for a moment, it's a pretty it's a pretty strong and severe one. Uh, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him up as a burnt sacrifice. Abraham is called to give back, if you will, to the Lord what was graciously given to him. We know the story because we've already looked at it, plus we just know the story of Abraham, that Abraham did not have a son. The heir to my estate, he says, as we looked at last week, is Eleazar of Damascus. Right, A son of one of my servants is going to inherit everything I have, yet you, Lord, told me that I'm, I'm going to be the father of a great nation. And I don't understand how this is possibly going to be. I don't, I don't have a son. I don't have, I don't have the basic thing I need. It's like God commanding Adam, be fruitful and multiply by yourself. Like, well, God, this is, I don't, how do I do this? And he looks and he inspects all the animals, names them all, in fact, and says, I, I find no helpmate here. I, I, I can't do what you've commanded me to do. And the Lord then graciously puts him to sleep <laughs> and from his body brings forth his helpmate that will allow him to do it. Well, Abraham's in a very similar spot. Like, Lord, you, you've said I'm going to be a great nation. You, you've, you've called me to be a blessing to the nations that way, but I don't even have the resources. I don't have a son. I, I have a wife that's barren and I don't have a, a one who will inherit and carry on the vision to do what you've called me to do. And so we know the Lord then graciously gives him Isaac, and now at this point, calls him to give Isaac back. And Abraham rises early in the morning and saddles his donkey, gets a couple young men and says, let's go, we got a job to do. It's an amazing story. So we know the command. But let's think about the context of the command. Because this command to Abraham comes in chapter 22, and Abraham was called in chapter 12. And at least we know that one aspect, one part of the context of this passage is the thing we just mentioned, that God had given him Isaac. Abraham acknowledges that he does not have the resources to do what God has promised. He does not have the resources to do what God has called him to do. And yet he has seen the Lord in a most spectacular way by waiting until the place where it was obvious it was not of Abraham and it was not of Sarah, so that the point was clear, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord God himself, will provide. And he had provided. And he had given Abraham and Sarah this gift 
this son, Isaac. This is very important to remember, to keep this in the back of our heads. You know, some point to this passage. In fact, this passage in Genesis 22 is a very familiar one for people to point to as sort of a model of Christian faith, which is blind, you know, the idea of blind faith. Well, Abraham is like exhibit A for blind faith in many people's opinion. And this is what the Christian life is like. It's, it's not having any clue about the why, not having any clue about the how, not even having any clue about the what. Abraham does not know what's going on. And just acting, just acting in faith, sort of blind belief. And many people have used this as a model for Christian belief, that this is the highest level of faith, that the highest level of faith is a blind, irrational faith, obeying when there is utterly no reason and no sense to it, but you just act. I think we have to look closer. We really have to look closer at this text. You're just not reading the text closely if you think that's what's going on in this text. There is a context to Abraham's faith in this passage and throughout his life. And we know that one piece of that context is the fact that God had provided Isaac. Abraham is going to believe God in this case. He's going to trust God when God calls him to do something that granted he does not understand. It's not as if Abraham understands what's going on here. But he knows who has called him to do it. The one who has called him to sacrifice his son, the one who has called him to do something which by human standards seems ridiculous and irrational. But the one who has called him to do it is the one who has given him Isaac. He's the one who brought life out of a barren womb. Not only that, he's the one who called Abram when he was in the land of idolaters. It was God who sought Abraham out and said, go to the land I will show you, and brought him faithfully to that land. Not only that, he's the God who, as we saw in our text last week, actually said, here, not only will I make these pledges to you, but I will make a bond in blood with you. Get me the animals, right? The the ox, the ram, so forth. Split them in half. I pass between the pieces while you, Abraham, sit there and observe as I pass not only through these pieces for me, but as I pass through these pieces also for you, namely saying that the whole deal depends upon me. I will get it done. I will do everything I've promised for you. In fact, everything I've commanded you to do, I will ensure gets done. Because I will bear in this covenantal responsibility, I will bear my side of the bargain and I will bear your side of the bargain. And so take it to the bank. It's my oath, my bond in blood. Abraham Abraham comes to this crazy command. And while I'm sure that between verses 2 and verses 3, there is a whole boatload of consternation and question and scratching of the head and probably tears in private as he's grappling and wrestling with this crazy command. And this is his son. This isn't just some, some being that the Lord is using as a pawn to get to the next generation. This is his son. And the Lord makes it clear. Your only son. 
the one whom you love. And so I have no doubt between verses 2 and 3, Abraham probably shed tears and was grappling and maybe even was having more conversation with the Lord that we're not privy to in prayer. I, I, something tells me in my gut it's not just as simple as God said that and so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. I, I, I'm gonna, I have to assume here that Moses is giving us what we need to know, not everything we would like to know. And hence, this, I, I've always kind of set this aside as one of my early heavenly conversations is when I get there to find Abraham and just over a cup of heavenly coffee, it's going to be great coffee, um, to have this conversation with Abraham. Like, I would love to see, I, can you give me the backstory of what happened here? And I'd love to know how you bound Isaac. I'd like to hear that part of the story too because Isaac's not a little child. He's a, he's a young man. How did you get him on that altar? But anyway, all questions left for the next life. In this text, all we get is God commands it, and Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. But make no mistake about this. His obedience, which it clearly is, that we cannot question. And his faith, which it clearly is, that we cannot question, is by no means blind. And this is very important for you and for me in our lives because we are commanded to do things. We're commanded to obey. We find ourselves thrust into life situations, many of which we don't understand. We, we pray for them here. right? Our trials, our tribulations, the circumstances that surround our lives, and we don't know what the Lord is doing. We don't understand his providences. We don't understand why he's calling us to be faithful in the midst of the storm when we know full well he is powerful enough to eliminate the storm. Like, I'm asking you to give me the strength to deal with the storm, but you're the same God who I could just as well ask to end the storm. And oftentimes, most times, he doesn't. And we don't know why. And what do we do? Well, we, we have to take the next step. We, just, we have to saddle our donkey. We've got to grab a couple young men and say, let's go. We got to head toward that mountain over there. But our faith in the midst of that ought never to be blind. Our faith in the midst of that ought to be informed and flooded with truth and with knowledge. Our faith in the midst of that is not in our understanding of what God's doing. I always say to people, you can't do the math of this problem. Like, you can't solve it, okay? It's math well beyond your abilities. You can't try to figure out and draw the lines and connect. Well, oh, oh, I see what God is doing here. And oh, now I understand why he has me here. We do that on some simple level because we see some immediate low-hanging fruit to any situation. And we say, oh, my being in this difficult situation gave me the opportunity to talk to this person about Jesus. I can see something of what God's doing here. Okay. That's really low-hanging fruit, and it's good, and grab it, and, 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 and find some comfort in it. But God is doing a million things in anything he's doing with you. And it's not only for you, and it's not only for now, it's for generations to come, and it's just things you can't tease out. So don't try to do the math. You don't need to do the math. Abraham did not need to try to figure out why God is sending him to Mount Moriah. His faith was not to depend on that. His faith was dependent on one thing. I know the one who's telling me to do it. 
My faith is in the one who calls me to this obedience. I trust him or I don't trust him. That's really what every trial like this for us comes down to. Ours are usually not so overt, right? Ours are usually not this dramatic. But I know, I know you're going through trials. And I know sometimes you're facing, you know, you're put in very difficult decisions. And many times we know what obedience demands of us in a challenging situation. Sometimes it's just fortitude and perseverance. We're talking about that with Eleanor, you know, in the oars. And others of you who are going through long-term trials and so forth. And it's like, and God just calls you to persevere. And you're like, but why? But you could just end it. Why are you calling me to persevere when you, you're, you're my father? And I'm asking you, you could just end this thing. Like, why would you call me to do this? Why would you call me to sacrifice my son? And again, your faith then ultimately needs to be in the one who calls you to do it. Abraham knew. I don't know what he is up to. I have no idea what he's doing. But I know that the God who called me to do this is the God who gave me Isaac. The God who calls me to do this is the God who passed through the pieces and said, I, the immutable God, will just as soon become mutable than give up on my promise to you. He pulled me out and told me to look at the stars of the sky and then bound himself in blood. So I sat on my donkey and off I go. I want you to think about it. This is why it's so important for you and for me. Ultimately, this text we know is to drive us to Christ. So I don't want to make the text, hey, you got to be like Abraham and have really strong faith. But that's not a bad point. It's not ultimately the point because the point is always Christ, right? It's the point here is to look to Christ. But nonetheless, even Christ is a model for us. Right? Jesus, Jesus' death is an example to us, says Peter. Well, certainly then, Abraham's obedience is a model to us. It's not the primary point, but it's an important point. So what can you do about it? Well, you can build, and you should endeavor to build a really strong, foundation of belief a really strong foundation this is why coming to church again and again and again is so important because what we're doing in our weekly worship is we're just adding on sometimes it's little bit by little bit but we're adding on to that base of confidence in who our god is as we go through our trials and tribulations and we see the faithfulness of God, as we study the faithfulness of God, as we hear what God is doing, this is why your testimonies are important. When we hear and you give praise for something the Lord has done, it's glorious. And what it does is it's telling us and reminding us who our God is that calls us to persevere in the midst of trial. And by God's grace, the stronger that platform, that foundation of confidence is in God, well then, the less likely I am to be tipped over by the wind of trials. Or when people push back on my faith. I tell my students that, as you know, in apologetics. I say, if you've if you got a little tiny foundation of knowledge and confidence in God, and you try to have a big belief system on the basis of little knowledge and little confidence, well, some snarky professor in a university just comes and just pushes like that with some, some argument... And your whole faith topples over. Or you find out you get some bad diagnosis 
or lose somebody you love, and all of a sudden you're like, what the heck? Why would God? I can't believe in a good God if he does this. And, and this little, you know, the, uh, Jesus says in the, in the parable of the seeds, right? The, the sun comes out and scorches that seed that has the little tiny roots. It just scorches it. It doesn't have the source of life. And the, the, the rain and the wind comes and blows on the one whose house is built on the sand, the, the crummy foundation. Therefore, it's really important that we build that very strong foundation upon the rock and that we build it and grow it, not by anything in ourselves, but by looking, looking, observing, knowing, hearing, reading about the goodness of God so that our foundation is rock solid because you're going to face trials and things you don't understand. And the winds are going to blow and people are going to push and trials are going to come. And the belief system will stand and obedience will come forth if we have confidence in the one who calls us. But the minute we go, yeah, why would he? Then the building starts to totter, teeter. Okay, so we've got a command, a severe command, but this command comes in a context. And in that context, we see our father Abraham exhibit faith, a faith that the author of Hebrews points out in the hall of faith, yes, by faith, Abraham. Where do we see the faith of our father Abraham? Well, one, he saddles up his horse and goes. Right? You know, he's not, he doesn't play the role of Jonah here. Who's like, okay, I'm out of here. You know, he could have done that. He could have been like, you know, and fled. That's what Jonah did. No, Abraham saddles his horse. And off he goes. But you really see it when he leaves the men, right? They come to the place... Uh, they see the, the mountain off there in the distance. And so Abraham says to the young men, this is in verse 5, and so they see uh, the three-day journey, interestingly enough, three days, and then and then they see the land, uh, the place where he's got to go. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, the lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Whatever has happened... All the consternation that happens between verse 2 and 3 is in some sense resolved by the time we get to verse 5 so that Abraham, with a very strong faith and resolve, says, I don't know what's going to happen between now and when I come back, but this I do know. The boy and I are going there, and the boy and I are coming back. And you say, well, how do you, where do you get any sense of that, being that the Lord just told you to offer him up as a burnt offering? Well, we know the answer to this. Because the author of Hebrews tells us what Moses does not tell us. And the author of Hebrews says, By faith Abraham was willing to offer up his son Isaac, knowing that if needs be, God could raise him from the dead. I don't know what's going to happen. I just know Isaac's coming back with me. Because this is the child of promise. God gave me Isaac, that through Isaac all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I don't know how it's going down, but I know this. If God can bring life out of the barren womb of Sarah, then he can bring life back from the dead. And so I will push right through to to full obedience, knowing that it's in God's hands. He's the one who provided and he will do it. And you see that manifested right there, that unbelievable confidence and faith. A faith, by the way, which we've already seen in chapter 12. Abraham said, go to the land I will show you. Abraham goes. A faith that's manifested in chapter 15. 
He brings him out. He shows him the stars of the sky. So shall your descendants be. And it says, and Abraham believed God and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. We have seen this faith and the Lord has acknowledged this faith. Now we come to chapter 22 and faith gets put in the fire. And here we have the Paul-James dynamic. Right? Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. That is, he had genuine faith and the Lord counted that as righteousness. In our lingo, we have faith, true genuine faith. We're united to the Lord Jesus Christ and by that faith, the righteousness of Christ is credited to us. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are counted as righteous before him and that's what we see happening in Genesis 15. But James, when he comes to his letter in James chapter 2, and seems to contradict what Paul says, though he most certainly does not, Paul, James is dealing with a completely different problem. Paul, when he writes Romans 3 and 4, in which he says that man is justified by faith apart from works, apart from obedience to the law, or the works of the law, Paul is dealing with a problem of those who are claiming that because they're Jews, or because they've been circumcised, or because they've kept the law, they are right with God. And Paul says, no, no, no. Justification is by faith, apart from those things. It's just by our union with Christ. James comes along, and he's dealing with another problem. James is dealing with the problem of people who are saying they have faith. They're just uttering, they're just you know, professing believers, but they don't ever live it out. They don't live as if it's really true. They don't live according to their profession. And James comes back hard on them. Don't think that faith will save you, he says. Man's not justified by faith alone, but by what he means by faith there is by a mere profession. Man is justified by faith alone, but by a living faith, a true faith, a faith that unites us to the Lord Jesus Christ, the vine, which then produces fruit. And if there's no fruit that it's evidence that the, profe- the profession is not true and that one is not truly united to the vine. So don't think that just saying you believe in Jesus is sufficient. I know, I tell my students all the time, I know you guys can pass quizzes on this stuff. But do not make the mistake of thinking that the Christian faith is cognitive. That as long as I know the right things, as, in fact, even if I know them and assent to the truth of them, that yes, I believe those things are true. Do not think that will save you. Even the demons believe and they shudder, James says. It is a true faith. You know you believe it because it works itself out in your life. You live according to it as evidence that in fact you do believe it. It's not the evidence that makes you a Christian. It's the evidence that reveals that the faith is true and that you are truly united to the vine, right? When I see, ap- when I see grapes growing off the vine, it tells me that that little branch is in fact truly united to the vine. When all the branches have leaves on them and little clusters of grapes and then there's one branch sticking out there that has no leaves and no grapes, I know there's a problem. I know that's a dead branch. I know that that branch is not united to the life-giving vine. And that's what James is saying about our Christian lives. And therefore, it's fair to look for the fruit. And if we don't see it again, you can't make it. If you don't see it, then the point is, then let's pray to God to unite us to the vine. That's where salvation is found. Well, Abram, this is Abram's test. This is where, this doesn't make him a believer, but this reveals 
the truth, the validity of the faith that he claimed to have back in chapter 15. That faith is now put to the test. And we see now his obedience as an expression of faith. Do you really believe that your descendants will be as the sands of the you know, seashore and the, and the stars of the sky? Have you gotten the lesson, Abraham, that I myself, Jehovah, Jireh, will provide, that I will do it? You said you believed. I counted it to you as righteousness. Now, the test comes where he will have to live according to that or not. Oh, no, it depends on me. I have to preserve Isaac's life. Or you give, you take away, you bless, you do what you do. The promise is from you. The fulfillment is from you. I trust you. And of course, Abraham is obedient all the way to the end. Even through the gut-wrenching questions of his son, Dad, again, don't read it as a Bible story. (laughs) Read it as a story, a true story. Dad, I see the wood. It's on my back. I'm carrying up the wood for the the fire. I I see you got the fire there. Where's the lamb? Now think about that gut-wrenching question. When you know, it's like when you've got a really difficult conversation to have with somebody and they don't know it's coming. And they're talking to you as if everything's normal. Maybe you've got some very bad news to tell them or, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're a boss and you've got to fire somebody and you see them in the morning and they come in and say, hey, boss, how's it going? You know, and you're like, oh, good. <laughs> Your son is saying to you, hey, dad, I'm really glad to have this time together good bonding time we're heading up the mountain for this it's nice you brought me along but where's the lamb and he says son the lord will provide the lamb and again maybe faith that the lord will provide a substitute or not but he knows whatever it is it will be of the lord's doing and abraham is faithful to the end even to the point where he binds his son puts him on the altar and then raises the knife to kill him and at that point the lord puts a halt to it So we've considered the faith of Abraham. We've considered the the background to that faith. We've considered the obedience of Abraham and as a model in that sense for us. But of course, the, the purpose of this text and the real thing that this text drives to is to the character of God who provides. And what he provides in this case is a substitute. He provides a ram caught in the thicket. Abraham, stop. Do not kill your son. And he turns and looks, and there with his horns caught in the thorns is a ram. And man, what a joy it must have been to untether, you know, untie his son and, and then take this ram and put the ram on the altar and with his son kill the ram and offer him up as a substitutionary sacrifice in the place of Isaac, his only son, the one whom he loves. And the point here is twofold. On the one hand, Abraham's faith was tested and found to be precious metals, not wood, hay, and stubble. It went through the fire and something substantial came out the other side. Obedience. And that's important. But another, another message is being given in this text, another reminder, another reinforcement, not only for Abraham, but for all of Israel. Israel, Moses is saying, do you see this in the midst of your trials? Remember, he's writing this to Israel who's in the wilderness on their way to the promised land filled with their own trials, wandering around the desert. And Moses is saying, do you see this? What do we learn from this, Israel? We learn Jehovah Jireh. We learn 
the Lord himself will provide. Trust in him. Do not doubt him. He is the God who provides. And in this case, he provides a ram in the thicket to come and be a sacrifice for Isaac. But of course, we know that, and the language is there. I don't, Moses, of course, doesn't even know what he's writing. I mean, he knows what he's writing, but he, he writes more than he knows. When he lays the emphasis on the fact that this is your son, your one and only son, the one you love. When he has Isaac on his way up to the altar carrying the wood himself for his own sacrifice. Moses is writing this story because that's what happened. But when we get to Mark 15, when we get to the road to Golgotha, to Moriah, where Jesus now, the only son of the Father, my son, my only son, my beloved son. Remember when, he, when he's being baptized and up out of the water he comes and the father speaks over him, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That the language is laid there for us that points forward to the one who will lead his son up the mountain, carrying the wood for his own sacrifice. And in this case, the father will not take away the sword. But he will bring it down upon his son, his only son whom he loves. And as it happens, in this case, this will be your, sac- your substitute. There's no substitute for him because this is the substitute. This is the one with his head caught in the thorns, as we're told in the story, as they twist the thorns mockingly and so forth and jam them down on his head. But for those of us who have eyes to see, for those of us who who understand Genesis 22 and look at the scriptures now through the lens of the Old Testament, we see more going on there than those maybe in the moment could have seen. And we hear back then in Moses more than Moses knew he was writing. Jesus, of course, is our substitute. He is the one who was given that he might be our substitute. The substitute for our sins the only begotten son of the father and the father calling his son to go and do an inexplicable thing for the sake of his people and there's a lesson here for Israel see Genesis 22 was to be the picture that Israel understood hey Israel I've called you to be a blessing to the nation but do you know what being a blessing to the nation means it means stuff like this this is how This life that I've called Abraham your father to do, where you have to sacrifice your son. And again, whether Israel could know this in the time or not, I don't know. But this is what obedience is going to look like. It's going to take something like this. Remember, Israel had this idea, oh, we're going to be a blessing to the nations. Sort of blessing will just roll down from the mountains. That God's going to exalt Israel. We're the special people. And then blessing's going to roll down. But what he's showing them in Genesis 22 is that blessing the nations is going to look like this. This is the kind of obedience that is going to be required in order for the nations to be blessed. And at the end of the day, Israel didn't want it. They didn't want a king like that. Right? They, they didn't want the sacrificed son. 
They would not be like their father Abraham and be obedient. But the God of Israel said, I will do it. I will do it myself. I will take upon myself the curse that Israel needs to take in order to be a blessing to the nations. I myself will give up my son, not just for the sake of Israel, but for the sake of the world. Yes, the point of the story is have faith. The point of the story is be like Abraham. The point of the story is be obedient. Let your faith work itself out in your life and in your life decisions. The point of the story is, look, you've got to live the things you believe. Even in the face of uncertainty, trust the God who calls you to do it. But that's not the ultimate point of the story. Because again, that would be kind of driving you back to you. And I'm not saying it's not important. But the point of this story, again, is Jehovah Jireh. The point of this story is God, our God, provides. How good do we have it? Abraham, when he was called to do his hard thing, brutally hard, could look back on these amazing things God had done and, and he could have that solid faith that says, okay, I don't get it, but I'll do it. You and I not only have that, we can look back to his stories too. They, these are why we read these stories. They build that foundation, that strong foundation for our confidence. But we have Golgotha. We have the cross. We have God giving up his only begotten son for us that we might have victory over death. What do we have to fear? Why do we get weak knees? in the face of our trouble, when the God who calls us to perseverance, when the God who calls us to fortitude is the God who did that. I don't know why God calls you to do the stuff he calls you to do. I don't know why God allows coronavirus. I don't know why God allows tragedy. I don't know why God allows our elementary school principal to have cancer. I don't know any of this stuff, nor does he give me the answers to any of it. But it ought not rock my world. I mean, in as much as I grieve and hurt for people, of course, that it does. But it ought not topple me. It ought not topple my faith, even in the midst of the consternation, because the God who calls us to persevere is the God who did that, the God who sent his son and did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. A God who does that, I don't need to do the math. I trust him. Trust him. Even in the midst of the trials, he has given him up and he has been raised from the dead. And I have seen the victory on the other side of death in the life of Christ. The point of the story, as all these stories, is Jesus. And I want to encourage you to strengthen, you know, uh, what is it in Hebrews where he says, strengthen the feeble knees. You know, don't let your hands hang down by your side and your knees go weak. Strengthen the things that hang low and strengthen those legs under you for you know the victory that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. The ram has been sacrificed for you. He has taken your place so that you through him might have eternal life. Be confident in the midst of your trials. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this story, a familiar story. We thank you for the faith of Abraham. We thank you for the model that he is for us. But Father, most of all, we thank you for who you are. 
For you are the God who said to Israel, not your son, my son. You are the God who said to Abraham, not your only begotten son whom you love, but my only begotten son whom I love. Father, we thank you for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for all of us here today that you would help us to trust in you. For we have seen what you've done. Your love has been manifested unto us and to the world in the person of your son. May we never despair. May we never ultimately be overcome by anxiety. And certainly, Father, may our faith never be toppled. For our faith is not in our circumstances. Our faith is not in getting in all the answers. Our faith is in you, the God who sent his son for us. And we thank you for it. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.